I'm Brooke Werchefter, Director of Community Organizing at ICAR. At ICAR, we fight for justice in groups that we call Minyan Sedek. In Hebrew, a minion is a group of at least 10 adults who gather together for prayer, and Sedek means justice. We believe that people need community to sustain the long work it takes to build a more just and loving society. We've just learned that the Supreme Court of the United States has effectively overturned the federal right to abortion. This means that many states across the country will immediately outlaw abortion access, and others will drastically restrict that right, preventing Americans from accessing the health care they need and have experienced as a constitutional right for the last 50 years. A person's access to abortion is a Jewish value. Banning abortion is a violation of our religious freedom as Jews. In light of this extraordinary new restriction to our self-determination, a group of us at ICAR decided to come together to tell our abortion stories. This is our righteous prayer for justice. So in 1980, I'm 24 years old. I'm living with my beloved of four years and uh, we were both working and of course no money, um, really struggling to make ends meet. Since I had an IUD, I was convinced that it would be impossible for me to get pregnant, which big surprise, IUDs are not 100% effective contraception. It was $325 to get an abortion at Planned Parenthood. And I remember they were so kind, they let us pay, what was it, like 160 something dollars on the day of the abortion. And then we could pay the rest off as we collected the money. Really, really good. We lived around the corner from Planned Parenthood, but most people came up Van Ness Avenue taking the bus and waiting for young women getting off the bus was a group of anti-abortion activists that heckled them the three blocks it took to walk from Van Ness to Planned Parenthood. They were there to, they were there for the sole purpose of uh, intimidating young women who needed to get to the clinic. Planned Parenthood had a group of volunteers with uh, badges and signs that were there, again, for the specific purpose of allowing the women to get off the bus and get to the clinic unmolested. So I go in. I remember there's a post, there are posters on the ceiling of Hawaii, tropical paradise and potholders in the stirrups. The doctor was a, a young guy with a beard. He was very kind. And uh, I was hemorrhaging a lot when I came home. My boyfriend was very sweet. He brought me roses. Okay, it's all these years later. I have never regretted my decision. Hi, my name is Marnina Schoen. I'm an ICAR member and an actor, and I'll be reading stories that other members of our community submitted anonymously. I was trying desperately to get pregnant for a whole year. 
I had a chemical pregnancy, then a miscarriage, and immediately after, got pregnant again. I was so excited. I was nauseous every morning and knew that was a good sign. One night, I couldn't stop vomiting, not even to hold a sip of water, and went to the ER. My doctor was a friend of a friend, and I asked him to order an ultrasound since I hadn't had one yet. I was still woozy and weak as the ultrasound tech probed around for what felt like way too long. I'm a healthcare provider. I do gestational dating ultrasounds. I know how long they should take. Afterward, the doctor told me that the pregnancy looked irregular. There was no fetus yet, but he tried to stay optimistic. I asked for the report. I know an irregular pregnancy report when I read one. I felt empty, but almost not surprised. I see so many miscarriages, missed abortions, and fetal demises on a daily basis. We had to wait the required amount of time to allow something to grow, and when it didn't, I chose to take a combination of misoprostol and mifepristone, also known as the abortion pill. I stuck the pills in my cheek, and within an hour I was shaking so bad I could barely breathe. I piled blankets on top of myself and then bled and bled, in big chunks. By the next day, the bleeding had slowed down, but I kept bleeding lightly for weeks, all through a trip to the East Coast. It never stopped. When I went for my four-week follow-up, the doctor did an ultrasound and noticed that I still had retained tissue in my uterus. She was very kind. She told me to go home, eat lunch, and come back with my husband. She gave me an Ativan, which made me loopy. I had to have a vacuum extraction, my second quote-unquote abortion, in one month. I listened to musicals on my earphones while it happened. It was the third most painful thing I've ever experienced after childbirth and kidney stones. She did another ultrasound, and still I had retained tissue. She had to go back in again, and then finally it was over. The bleeding stopped the next day. This is what we mean when we say abortion is healthcare, because the medications and procedures that are used for elective abortions are the exact same necessary, life-saving treatments that are used for a whole host of obstetrical complications. I don't think anyone outside OB care understands how common complications are. One out of every four to five pregnancies do not result in a live baby, whether due to abortion, miscarriage, failed pregnancies, ectopic pregnancy, molar pregnancy, or fetal demise. I was lucky to receive quick, compassionate care. But what will happen to pregnant people in states where abortion is outlawed? What doctor will dare to do a DNC when they could face jail time or a civil lawsuit? Abortion is never black or white. We call it a choice, but I don't know if I even agree with that word. It's like saying it's a choice to run out of a burning building. Nobody thinks that they're going to put abortion into their life story. Certainly nobody thinks it's going to be a part of their marriage story. I certainly didn't think it was going to be part of our marriage experience. Right. You assume once you are on the path to wanting to have children, why would the word abortion ever enter your your life, right? 
well, on our six-year-plus journey to becoming parents, we were more than surprised when we ended up having to have an abortion. And there are a lot of euphemisms for what we had because it was a termination for medical reasons. It was a reduction. We were pregnant with multiple babies. But at the end of the day, it was an abortion with two other babies in utero who we were making sure would survive. Yeah, basically what happened with us after being told we weren't going to be able to become parents this way, we did do a last attempt and were overly aggressive. We implanted three embryos um, with this last ditch effort. Because we knew it wouldn't work because we had done it so many times before. Our doctor thought we were crazy. But we wanted to take one more shot. So we put three embryos in and And defying all odds and all statistics, all three took. And I was told immediately the risks to my own life and the risks to the lives of those three embryos if we continued with a triplet pregnancy. And so it was no question for us. But we already, we finally got a decent piece of news through this whole (laughs) journey. And the second decision was then right away we have to do one of the, it's, it was the hardest thing that we had to do, I think. It was the it hardest was. thing. But we were privileged to have a doctor to talk to about it, our families to talk to about it, therapy access if we wanted it, a strong marriage, the happiness that ultimately that would probably bring us the family. We thought we, that was our best chance. That was our best chance. Parents was by doing this, by, by having this abortion. And still, with all of that, support. It was the hardest decision and moment we've ever lived through. And I'm just still so thankful for wonderful doctors, capable doctors, caring doctors, skilled doctors who can do this legally in a safe way. And by the way, even with all of that, it was still not the uh, high-risk doctor we had gone to because he doesn't do them. We still had to call in a special doctor and, and do weekend it hours. weekend hours when the office was closed. And that was with the best possible chance of outcome. It was still completely clandestine and secretive. So there's something so important about just the light of day with these. Yeah. With these and to be honest, you know, we had shared a great deal of our journey, but we hadn't really talked about this part because it really took us by surprise. And you actually are the one that said... Given what's going on in this world, we have to talk about this. It literally saved the lives of our two children. Two beautiful, healthy children. And it saved my life. And it saved Abby's life. To have an abortion. My name is Maya Borgoyes, and I consider myself one of Icar's founding children. Six years ago, I decided to go to medical school primarily to become an abortion provider. I made this decision in the early fall of 2016, a time during which Trump's path to the White House seemed laughable at best. I wanted to become an abortion provider not because I feared a future without Roe, but because I wanted the privilege of holding space for people seeking abortion. I wanted to provide comprehensive and non-judgmental care to anyone who needed it. I was drawn to the field because of its inextricable connection to policy, advocacy, and feminism. At the time, abortion advocacy was certainly important, but it didn't feel life or death to me. When Trump was elected, I was living in New York, surrounded by unimaginable shock and confusion. In early 2017, I attended an event at NYU called 
abortion outside the clinic, imagining safe and legal abortion in a post-Roe world. They discussed how to make abortion pills more accessible and how to manage the inevitable complications that would arise from unsafe attempts at termination. Despite these frank conversations, this post-Roe world still felt impossible. Targeted legislation in anti-choice states forced abortion providers to follow absurd rules with no medical reasoning, but they were still able to provide care. Maybe I was naive, but this post-apocalyptic possibility felt unimaginable. Every step of my journey through medical school has been marked by attempts to chip away at access to abortion, which has only furthered my determination to become an abortion provider. When I got into Emory Medical School, Georgia voted on its six-week abortion ban. When I started my third year of medical school, Texas enacted its heartbeat bill. And when I started my fourth year, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe was leaked. Since starting medical school, I've seen emergency surgeries to treat ruptured ectopic pregnancies, narrowly avoiding the unnecessary death of a woman who deeply wanted to start a family. I've seen IVF patients desperate for children after having three abortions for debilitating fetal conditions. And I've seen teenagers electing termination with a grace and maturity beyond their years, knowing that becoming a parent would serve neither them nor the fetus. I feel more committed than ever to this career path, despite reversals in support and accessibility for abortion. One in three people who are able to get pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetime, and I'm honored to be embarking on a career with the privilege to support them through it, regardless of the circumstances that will lead them to me. My name is Joe Friedman, and I retired from Cedar sinai Medical Center in 2008. I'm an RN, and I was a labor and delivery nurse, and then I was the ombudsman for the OBGYN department for 32 years. In the 60s, late 60s, uh, there was a group that decided, <coughs> while Roe versus Wade was still not passed, <coughs> and abortions were illegal, to set up a network to help women who needed to get abortions safely and with compassion. I lived in Hyde Park at the time. I was very involved in politics. I was very peripherally involved in Jane, but what I would do was they had a, a recording machine and there were posters in, in the free press like the Chicago Reader or the Seed problem pregnancy called Jane. We were all called Jane. And you only knew as much as you needed to know to do your job so that if there was a arrest, you couldn't really reveal too much. At any rate, my job was to call people who had left their names on the answering machine. And I would call them and say I was Jane and get their information. How pregnant, when was their last period? Uh, could they go to New York, which at that time was legal? If they couldn't, and they wanted to have a counseling session, then I would set that up for them. And there were no, a number of women who really couldn't go to New York. I, there was one, I remember a Catholic lady saying, I have six children, I have to have food on the table at six o'clock in the evening, and my husband can't know this is going on. I said, you know, don't worry. And she didn't have a budget. And she didn't have money. And I said, you know, don't worry. It, you, you'll, you'll be able to do this. And what she said, which touched me, she says, oh, I will say a Hail Mary for you. <laughs> At any rate, 
that was my job to then pass that information on. Toward the end, I had decided to go back to school. This experience of my having this last child with natural childbirth led me to want to become a midwife. And in order to become a midwife, you had to get a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. And so I went to St. Xavier College. And after three years of having an IUD in place, I already had three kids. I found out that I was pregnant. And when I first found out I was pregnant, I thought, well, okay, fine, I'll have a fourth child. And my mom and dad and my husband all sat down with me and said, my, my familial diminutive is Josie. Josie, this is your turn. You know, you, you're going to school. This is your dream. Why are you letting your biology? I mean, they almost had to talk to me. And I said, you know what? You're right. And so that's why I proceeded. And so I went back to this Dr. Charles, who had been so helpful to me with having the last kid, Jason, and said, I hope you're like Marshall Fields, which is the big department store in Chicago, and you honor your products because this is not working and I'm pregnant. And he said, you know, oh, Joe, I don't know what we can do. I, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but I have to get approval from the board. And so meanwhile, I was attempting to find a place that I could get an abortion. Uh, if I had to, I was going to use Jane. Um, but I wanted to see if I could push the system to help me. It turns out that the year before, I had hepatitis. And so Dr. Charles said, you know, maybe if you get information from your internist, I can take that to the board and um, document that you really shouldn't be pregnant. And they wanted more information. So my husband was involved in trying to get the information that they required. And ultimately they did get the information and I was able to have an abortion at Mike Gorey's hospital. And that was in 72. Roe versus Wade, if I'm not mistaken, happened in, I believe, January of 73. So it was just before. The only reason you could get an abortion is if the life of the mother was in jeopardy. And so uh, Alan Charles was advocating is that my recent hepatitis was grounds for it. And it, and it worked. I was just lucky. I, and the thing that was so amazing to me so here I'm going to St. Xavier College, which is a Catholic college. Probably they never saw a Jew before, but they were very, very um, progressive and accepting. And I was supposed to have a final that morning at, I think, nine or 10. And I was supposed to have the abortion at that time. So I, I called up the sister and I said, you know, Sister Mary, whatever, uh, can I come in at eight o'clock in the morning and take the final so that I can then go for an abortion? And they did not blink. I came in early, I took the final, and they actually called me that evening to see how I was doing. I felt very lucky and I was unusual. And thank God for Jane. My name is Catherine, and my abortion was in the spring of 1967, when I was 20 years old. I blamed myself for my current pregnancy because of my own reckless behavior and my involvement with a married man. 
I think the things that people need to know today are that my doctor's hands were tied. The doctors were as liable to being charged with a criminal offense for even being consulted about an abortion. And my doctor, who was wonderful, confirmed a six-week abortion and told me, if you don't come back for prenatal care, do not tell me what you do. I cannot know your plans. And, and that was serious because he would be criminally involved. I had a really desperate conversation with my boyfriend and got him to agree to look around and find somebody to do an illegal abortion and pay for it. And he did. He found a licensed vocational nurse who was doing illegal abortions to help women, mostly friends in her community. She sent over a, a brown paper bag full of leaves to my apartment with instructions to make a tea and to be drinking that tea in the days leading up to her visit, which I did. And when she came, she told me um, to go ahead and go to the bedroom, take off my pants, lie on the side of the bed where the towel was. And she said, oh, the tea's been doing its job. Your, your cervix is dilating nicely. And then she took a, a catheter and she, and she began to insert it. And I could feel, I mean, I obviously couldn't see it, but I could, I could feel that it was very cold against my warm skin. And she just pushed it deeper and deeper. And then she said, okay, it's done, it's all over. She said, stay laying down for at least 20 minutes. She said, you will bleed for three or four days, like a heavy period. You'll pass the catheter by itself. And this should be all, all done. It should be passed in 24 hours. What happened was that I bled copiously. And what I recall is, is going in and out of consciousness. I recall lying on the bathroom floor so I could feel the cool tiles against my clammy skin. On, on day four, an ambulance took me to County Hospital it was in another city, it wasn't here. And I was immediately met with a barrage of questions from the doctors, from men in white, as I saw it. You know, what did you do? What have you done? How can, how can we help you if we don't know what you did? You have to tell us what you did. And every time they came and woke me up, that was the first thing they said, what did you do? They were required to let me bleed and to not give me a DNC, to not help me until a, an evidence of tissue was passed, which is, as it turns out is, is like a, a, a small fingernail size white tissue. So I just kept bleeding. And by uh, Tuesday night, it was clear that I wasn't gonna make it if I didn't get a blood transfusion. So, Actually, that was the only blood transfusion in my life. And they gave a few units of blood. As the blood was dripping into my veins, I did have an increase in contractions. It became intense and I did pass uh, like a dime-sized fragment of white tissue. And they agreed that they should do a DNC, but they didn't do it gladly. They, they, they had a, a uniform policeman outside my hospital door. I mean, it was, it was intense. As the doctor was starting, 
to, to prep me for the DNC, he said, you don't get any anesthesia. You don't get pain meds, not for you. And I just, I just agreed. I just thought, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve pain meds. This is my abortion story. I use fertility awareness method with my male partner to not become pregnant because no other birth control methods really work for us for a variety of reasons. So my fertility awareness method, which is different than the rhythm method because it is a symptothermal method in which you check your cervical height, vaginal fluid, and your temperature, totally worked for us for 100% of the time for three years until one day I just misread my calendar and told my fiancé that he could ejaculate inside of me the day I was ovulating. Whoopsies. <laughs> I knew I was pregnant within a week, and I even felt the implantation in my uterus. We do want to have kids, but like in three years, not right now. I had just quit my job when I found out I was pregnant to start a new career, and it was the beginning of the pandemic. It was really just not the right time. Plus, we weren't married yet. And for me personally, I really wanted to be married before having kids. So I'm an herbalist, a doula, and a women's health coach. And I knew I wanted to do a combined herbal and medical pregnancy release. So medical pregnancy release uses mifeprestone and then misoprostol. Mifeprestone stops your progesterone receptors from receiving any progesterone, and so whatever's growing in your uterus will die. Misoprostol, which is interestingly an ulcer medication, then causes your uterus to contract and expel any material inside it. So what I wanted to do was instead of using mifeprestone, which is the one that usually can cause problems like vomiting and hormonal disruptions that are harder to get kind of back to equilibrium after the abortion, I wanted to take herbs instead of mifeprestone and then still take misoprostol to help expel the material. Because herbs do a really good job at killing anything growing inside your uterus, but it's a lot harder to get them to make your uterus contract. You can do that, but you have to take herbs like it's your full-time job for three weeks and you can get pretty close if not reaching liver toxicity which I wasn't trying to do. So I contacted some herbalist midwives that I know and found a good protocol that worked for me. Uh, it was herbs that I had access to and that I was familiar with and knew how to make and some of them I even already had the tinctures of. So I started taking um, mugwort and black cohosh uh, at certain intervals for about two weeks. And then for the three days ramping up to when I was going to take the misoprostol, I started taking them in closer intervals. I invited my sister-in-law and a very close friend over for my abortion. My fiance, I asked him to please go. I don't want him here for this right now. And I took the misoprostol and within nine hours, my abortion was complete. So my sister-in-law and my friend had both previously had surgical abortions and did not have good experiences. Through being with me and my pregnancy release, they said they felt healed witnessing my really positive abortion experience. Um, it was not painful at all. Uh, it was very, very early in the pregnancy, which I believe helped. I also believe the herbs helped prepare my body for this release. And my copper IUD I used to have actually had way more painful periods than this abortion was. So I really found the experience healing, not only for my close friends, but for myself. I felt very empowered to be in charge of my own body, to not just have reproductive rights, but have full reproductive sovereignty. And I felt ancestrally healed because 
for sure I've had female ancestors that had to carry unwanted pregnancies to term, whether because they didn't have access to abortifacient drugs or because they just didn't work. Um, and finally, I would go as far as to say I actually loved my abortion. And I feel so lucky and I thank God every day that not only did I have the accessibility to get this abortion, but that I had the knowledge and previous herbal experience and contacts to help me have this really good experience without fear and without shame. And I know when I want to have kids, if God willing, I can, um, that it will be the right time for me. Thank you again. And I really hope that this story can be useful for someone. I was at the beginning of my chief year of my OBGYN residency when I was diagnosed with a non-viable pregnancy at approximately 10 weeks gestation. The plan was to have an evacuation of the products of conception at Planned Parenthood with my private obstetrician. My partner and I arrived quite early the morning of. Only one other couple was present at the clinic. They were clearly further along in their pregnancy than I was, and we're obviously dealing with a difficult and unenviable situation of a late-term abortion. I was taken back for my procedure, and my private doctor met me in the operating room. The next thing I remember is waking up to a 15-year-old young woman consoling me in the recovery room. She was laying in the stretcher next to me, recovering from an abortion herself. Clearly, I must have been cramping so terribly that I looked visibly uncomfortable. She assured me that all would be okay and that my cramps and bleeding would soon subside. I looked at her quizzically, and she let me know that she had been down this road before. This was her third termination. She further assured me that I would be back on my feet in no time. And she was right. Shortly thereafter, I was escorted to meet my partner in the waiting area, only to find him looking worried while awaiting me in a sea of black and brown women. He is quite fair. This image has remained etched in my memory. So a couple of thoughts. Despite my being an OBGYN resident, I felt quite sad and quite anxious. This was my first pregnancy and certainly not the outcome which I had hoped and dreamed for. Post-procedure, when I re-entered the waiting room, I wanted to bolt. I wanted the whole thing behind me. I wanted the comfort of my own home and bed. My whole Planned Parenthood experience was surreal, and upon reflection, it became very clear that my privilege, and all that came along with that, private insurance, a private doctor, priority treatment, class, race, etc., all got me in the door early. In retrospect, I recognized that that contributed to my discomfort, too. Fast forward 10 months later. I was 32 weeks pregnant with a very desired pregnancy. I'm back at Planned Parenthood, but now I'm performing my first abortion on a 15-year-old who, this time, happened to be black. To say I was struggling with the cognitive dissonance of being both pregnant and performing an abortion is an understatement. I understood that it was my privilege this time to be able to help these young women who had also helped me 
as we collectively supported each other in making our own decisions about when and how we wanted to have children. I don't know that my story is similar to the other people who are making these recordings. I grew up in New York City and in Los Angeles on the Upper West Side in one and on the West Side of LA in the other with an entertainment industry father and a publishing mother who was friends with the founders of Ms. Magazine. From a very early age, I was steeped in the anti-war movement and the women's movement, as were most of my girlfriends. We became sexually active early. It was the time of the sexual revolution. Love the one you're with, Erica Jong's fear of flying, and we were having a ball. We all probably got our birth control when we were around 16 years old at the huge Planned Parenthood in Midtown Manhattan. We used to joke that if you sat there long enough, you would see everybody you knew coming through. I went to college when I was 17, and uh, after a couple of years, found myself pregnant, which was inevitable given the level of sexual activity I and my friends were having and how bad birth control was in that era. So uh, my girlfriends came together with me, and we sojourned back to our Planned Parenthood, and I had an abortion. I had no regrets about it, no second thoughts. I was 20 years old and had huge prospects for myself. Afterwards, they sat with me. We took the day off. We took it easy. We drank lots of tea and listened to Joni Mitchell. And I went back to school the next day. In later life, I moved to the Midwest, to Iowa, and I realized how unusual my upbringing had been and that while other people were cheerleaders and on football teams, we were out demonstrating in the street and having sex. I am happy for the experience that I had. I've gone on to have two fabulous children who I adore and actually became the board president of the Planned Parenthood in Iowa, where I lived. I conducted research in the Amazon basin and returned to the U.S. with tropical illnesses and infections. The medical care that I needed involved powerful medications, the kind that should not be taken in the first trimester of pregnancy. But that was when my birth control failed. I had a legal abortion 44 years ago. When I was healthy, I had a healthy pregnancy. This is a story that was submitted anonymously. Jim and I got married in 2006. In some of our friend groups, we were towards the last to get married, and in others, we were among the first. I wanted to try to have kids early in our marriage. In 2007, we found out that we were pregnant. I remember being over the moon. I had a trip planned to New York City to see my dear friends a few weeks after finding out that I was pregnant but I didn't tell them that I was pregnant when I was there because I was so superstitious. We didn't tell anyone at first, except for our parents. 
I remember we hit the 12-week mark. I went for an ultrasound and all looked good. Then we started to tell people. That is what people say to do. Wait for three months to make sure the pregnancy is healthy before you tell people. At that 12-week appointment, we also must have had blood work done, and the results came back with a ratio for Down syndrome that was higher than it should have been for someone of my age. We went back to the doctor for an amnio, and I remember the doctor doing an ultrasound to take some measurements, and the fetus had not grown the way it should have since the last appointment. She couldn't or wouldn't do the amnio, and instead referred us to a specialist to see the next day. Honestly, from there, everything is a blur. The issues with the pregnancy became known at 12 or 13 weeks, and the tests and decisions went on for several more. We went to one practice where they specialize in high-risk pregnancies, and they did the amnio. We waited for what seemed like days for the results. They came back chromosomally normal, but these doctors wanted me to come back for another ultrasound. So we did, and during that appointment, the doctors said there was something wrong with the baby's brain. To confirm, they said I could have a fetal MRI, which was scary, but I did it because I did not want to believe this was actually real. Those test results came back on a Friday afternoon. I was home alone. Jim told me later he had asked the doctor's office not to call me, but to call him, only they didn't get that message, so I was the one to get this gruesome diagnosis. The pregnancy was diagnosed with Dandy Walker Syndrome. Something so incredibly rare that most people have never heard of it, and there was very little to Google. Dandy Walker syndrome is a congenital brain malformation involving the cerebellum, the part of the brain that coordinates movement. I knew pretty quickly this was not good news, seeing that it involved the brain. The first person we called that Friday afternoon was Rabbi Browse. She came over to our apartment even though Shabbat was fast approaching. We couldn't get a hold of a doctor who would give us more of an explanation, but we could get a hold of a rabbi. We had shared with her where all these appointments and tests were heading. She told us she called another rabbi, one who specialized in medical ethics. This rabbi told her we could terminate the pregnancy, that my mental and physical health were the priority, that the quality of life that this child would have should it even survive the rest of the pregnancy would be very poor. I was already in the second trimester, and the longer the pregnancy went on, the harder it would be emotionally and physically. It took a while to accept this reality. I think that I was too consumed to realize how lucky I was, we were, to live in LA and to have a facility and a doctor who would do this procedure to terminate the pregnancy at 21 weeks, a mile from where we lived. I had to make one phone call to this facility and ask my OB's office to send over all of the test results to prove the need for a medical termination. The facility was hidden behind these really tall shrubs. I must have driven by the building a hundred times and never knew it was there, and I would have never ever known it was there if I hadn't had to walk into the building to do one of the most difficult things that I have ever done. When I woke up from sedation on the first day of the procedure, because at 21 weeks, a pregnancy termination lasts two days. Rabbi Browse was there to see me. We are forever grateful for her support. We have been blessed with two healthy children a few years later. The thought of other people having to experience the trauma of a painful pregnancy diagnosis, but not have the resources they need close to home, is traumatizing all over again. 
Thank you for listening to our stories. If you have an abortion story to tell, we encourage you to share it within your faith community. Join us in raising your voice for religious freedom and abortion access. Advocate for abortion rights in your state and local governments. Talk to your friends and family about the critical importance of voting in every election. And give as you're able to organizations that are supporting people financially who need access to care right now. Thank you to the members of ICAR who gave us their abortion stories and to Marnina Schoen for reading the stories that were shared with us anonymously. This podcast episode was produced by Vera Blossom, Benjamin Cooley, and me, Brooke Chafter. <laughs>